Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 60 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And of course, joining me is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I am an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Our mission at Dermosphere is to keep you up to date by feeding you information into your earbuds so that you don't have to use your eyeballs to look at it in journals or emails or whatever, which frees you up to do other things, I certainly hope. So we've got some discussions today about some cool articles, and since this is a episode with a number divisible by 10, we have a tradition that every 10th episode we sort of briefly review the stuff we discussed in the previous 10 episodes so that if you think you missed something, you might go back and find it, or it just refreshes your memory because I forget the stuff that we talked about and I'm one of the people who talked about it. <laughs> Darn memory. So you can look forward to that at the end of the episode, but Michelle's going to get us started with a titillating tidbit right now. All right, so we have a lovely article here out of the JAD. The authors are Carolina Kirkenmeyer and Bevan Bureau, and they are from Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, and the Pathology Department in Victoria, Australia. They have no conflicts of interest. This article is about female pattern hair loss in men, a distinct clinical variant of androgenetic alopecia. So those of us that treat hair loss probably recognize multiple different patterns in the patients that we see. Sometimes male patients will present with what is phenotypically very similar to female pattern hair loss, which is basically a reduction in the hair density over the mid-frontal aspect of the scalp and crown, but with retention of the frontal hairline. And this is in contrast to the way male pattern hair loss often presents, which is with fronto and temporal recession. But so this both is... of these are types of androgenetic alopecia, just there's male pattern hair loss and there's female pattern hair loss. And these guys are saying that men can actually get the female pattern of androgenetic alopecia. Is that right? That is what they are saying. And they're also proposing some treatment algorithms as well as potentially some patho, uh, pathologic or pathophysiologic pathways as to why the patients would present in this way. And there's some interesting um, data based off of the demographics. So this is a letter to the editor. They talk about the fact that female pattern hair loss is known to affect a small subset of men, but descriptions in our literature are relatively limited to case reports. And so here they did a retrospective review of the records from their clinic looking for men with female pattern hair loss between November 2017 and March 2020. They found men with diffuse hair loss on the mid-frontal aspect of the scalp, but with preservation of the frontal hairline and sparing of the backs and sides of the hair. And they do have a nice photograph that they've included with this publication, as well as a demonstration of treatment effect for the patient, which looked pretty satisfactory. I was happy for that patient. So all patients had complained of progressive hair thinning over months to years in the absence of significant shedding, and they also had a negative hair pull test away from the area of hair loss. And that's important to exclude the possibility of chronic telogen effluvium or some other stress-mediated or potentially diffuse pattern of, of alopecia areata. So it was a diagnosis of androgenetic alopecia, which was also confirmed dermoscopically. And I love that they did this concisely and very accurately, where you basically look at the hair shaft diameter and you look for a hair shaft thickness heterogeneity or hair shaft diameter variability. 
what you're actually perceiving there is the in-action process of follicular miniaturization that is at the heart of the pathology of androgenetic alopecia. So they I wanted didn't to actually see... know you could diagnose androgenetic alopecia dermoscopically. So I thought this was a cool, potentially pimpable little oh, yes. tidbit to come out of this article. Good point. Quite pimpable this. So these are the dermoscopic or trichoscopic signs of androgenetic alopecia. So hair shaft diameter variability or hair shaft thickness heterogeneity, same term described different ways in different literature um, publications. So greater than 20% variability between the hair shaft diameter, vellus hairs, and increased single haired follicular units. So in a normal, healthy adult scalp, each follicular unit will have two to four hair shafts emerging from it that are terminal hairs. As the process of androgenetic alopecia progresses, you have more and more single-haired follicular units, which of course decreases density and scalp coverage, and also it causes an increased perception of hair thinning. So all of these are signs of androgenetic alopecia on trichoscopy. All the patients were also then treated with either a low-dose oral minoxidil, by itself as monotherapy or a low-dose oral minoxidil along with a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, either finasteride or dutasteride. And then the response was assessed only in patients who'd completed six months of therapy. They looked at hair loss severity before and after treatment, and they graded it on the five-point Sinclair scale by two independent blinded dermatologists, and they were using standardized clinical photographs. So as a reminder, the Sinclair hair loss scale is for female pattern hair loss. Stage one is normal. Stage two is widening of the central part. Stage three is widening of the central part and loss of volume lateral to the part line. Stage four is the development of a bald spot anteriorly and stage five is advanced hair loss. So they were grading all of these patients along their treatment course. And so they had these men that they enrolled, they looked at 2,140 records of men with androgenetic alopecia, and they found 84 patients, which was 3.9% of their standard population that had been diagnosed with female pattern hair loss. In a subset of patients, 36 of them, they had blood test results available as well. It was about 42% of their sample, and they looked at those parameters as well. The patients who had this female pattern of hair loss that were men had low levels of testosterone and free testosterone, as well as lower vitamin D and zinc levels. And the percentages of those were about 20% of the patients that were male with female pattern hair loss had about 20, 20% of those had about, uh, had the low testosterone levels. Uh, the free testosterone was low in about 11%, 29% had low vitamin D levels and 8% had those zinc levels. And I've found that in female patients with female pattern alopecia as well, vitamin D levels are often low, and repleting those levels does seem to help therapeutic response. I suppose we should point out that this isn't like a placebo-controlled trial. It's not like they checked a bunch of blood tests in people who had the male pattern or who didn't have any hair loss at all and found that their levels were normal. So I guess it's possible that if you just checked everybody, their levels might be something like this. So it's tough to know how related this is, but it's an interesting little finding. It is true. They didn't have the comparison to their other population, although I think it would be an interesting follow-up to this article because they obviously have a sample of men that don't have female pattern alopecia that have androgenetic alopecia of a more typical type. So they could potentially compare those. They did compare them to studies in the literature that have been previously published that have not found changes in those parameters in men with androgenetic alopecia. But I think that's an opportunity for further publication for this group. So then they also looked at 31 patients who completed at least six months of therapy. 80% of those had been treated with low-dose oral minoxidil along with a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor. The low-dose oral minoxidil was around 2.35 milligrams daily on average, 
And then the 5-alpha reductase inhibitor was at 0.72 milligrams per day for the finasteride or 0.5 milligrams per day for the dutasteride on average. Out of this group of patients, they then looked at their response and how they improved over time. The patients on the combination therapy, which was 25 patients out of the subset that had completed six months of therapy. So they had 25 patients with combination therapy. 21 out of those 25 patients had a decrease in their Sinclair score by an average of 0.92. So going down a full grade in Sinclair score can be relatively significant. It can mean the difference between being able to actually camouflage the alopecia and being completely unable to do so, or if you have milder hair loss, even potentially achieving a more normal hair density. So in that combination group, they had pretty good results. Um, If you looked at the monotherapy group, which was six of the patients, they all had low-dose oral minoxidil by itself. Out of that group, four out of the six had a decrease in their Sinclair scale of 0.50, so about a half grade of improvement in the Sinclair scale. Not as robust as with the combined therapy, but of course, some men will not want to take the risk of going on to a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor because of the potential risk for decreased libido or erectile dysfunction. Wait a second. We discussed in a very early episode how that doesn't actually happen with 5-alpha reductase inhibitors. I agree. Um, I think that, again, I tell patients all the time when I'm starting them on a combined therapy regimen, you have to realize that if you give 100 men a sugar pill and you tell them it could cause erectile dysfunction, about 10% of them are going to have erectile dysfunction because a lot of it is a mental game for gentlemen. And because that is closely tied in with the self-esteem and self-worth and concept of a lot of young men, you could potentially have some significant outcome effects by changing that parameter. So they did have five patients on the combined therapy. Sorry, before you move on, can I just say how I counsel patients after having listened to to that or read that article? I think that may have been one of our demo episodes. It was a long Mm -hmm. time ago. So I say finasteride, super well tolerated. Most people do just fine. If you look online, you'll see that some people say that it can cause sexual dysfunction. But there is medical literature that say that that doesn't actually happen. Sexual dysfunction is just surprisingly common, and people like to blame it on their pills or whatever. So take it and go forth. Okay. I like the way you described that, too. That's pretty nice. Uh, But so in this study, five of the patients out of the 25 who were on combination therapy reported reduced libido or erectile dysfunction. But importantly, none of them discontinued the therapy. So it wasn't severe enough for them to discontinue the therapy, possibly because they were also receiving benefit in terms of increased hair density. There were some interesting demographic findings. So the female pattern hair loss was observed in men of all ethnic groups, and most commonly white men, about 50% of the cohort were Caucasian. Now that group relatively underrepresents the population of Melbourne, which is about 68% Caucasian. So you had a little underrepresentation of white patients even though they were the preponderance of the um, cohort because of the relative proportion to the normal population. So they were underrepresented. Asian men were overrepresented in this cohort. So in the patients presenting with female pattern alopecia as men, about 30% of them were South and Central Asian. And if you look at the population composition of Melbourne, Australia, only 21% of that population is of that same South and Central Asian derivation. And so it's a more common finding in that group based off of the population prevalence, and they might be potentially greater risk for that. I do wonder, because some of those patients tend to have a darker phototype, if they might be um, participating in the vitamin D deficiency group. So it would be nice to see the data for vitamin D deficiency broken out by ethnicity, and that might potentially yield some insight in that situation. 
They found, again, that hypertestosteronemia, hypovitaminosis D in a significant proportion of the patients. Testosterone deficiency has not previously been described in men or women with androgenetic alopecia. Lower vitamin D levels have been found in women with female pattern hair loss. Um, there has not been any association with lower vitamin D levels in men with male pattern hair loss in the literature. They didn't assess their other population, which I think, again, is an opportunity. Both the low-dose oral minoxidil and 5-alpha reductase inhibitors have been shown to improve hair counts in men with male pattern hair loss. And in this patient population, the combination of low-dose oral minoxidil and 5-alpha reductase inhibitor for six months or longer gave significant improvement in hair density in most patients and was superior to low-dose oral minoxidil monotherapy. It is a relatively small study. It is a retrospective study, and there's potential referral bias as this is a specialist hair clinic. However, I think it is an important step to describe this variant of patterned hair loss in men, and further research can help to confirm the, the role of testosterone and vitamin D. I will say personally, as a person who focuses part of her practice on hair loss, I do see this female pattern of hair loss more frequently in patients of Southeast and Central um, Asian derivation. And it can be, of course, distressing in those patients, just as any type of alopecia is in any patient. But I think sometimes the um, sort of feminine appearance can add an extra layer of discomfort or stress for those patients. And so finding an effective therapy, as these authors described, I think is a worthwhile endeavor. It was episode one, by the way, that we discussed that finasteride does not cause sexual dysfunction. So check that out. So uh, it's interesting that this happens, and I also thought it was especially nice that they kind of laid out their treatment protocol and that people not only retained their hair, but actually improved. So oftentimes when I'm telling patients about treatments for hair loss, I say, the best we can do usually is to prevent further loss. If we get any hair regrowth, that's like extra gravy. But these authors... Um, describe some extra gravy. So I like <laughs> that there's hope out there. And they also point out that it's better if you do minoxidil and finasteride together. So when I counsel patients about androgenetic alopecia these days, I usually sort of lay out three systemic options if we want to go systemics. Minoxidil, finasteride, and uh, Viviscal. And episode 44, we discussed some over-the-counter treatments for hair loss, and that one seems to have some medical data behind it. It's a supplement that you can buy. And we should probably just do them all, right? Just do them all forever. And then they might get the hair back. And then the other thing I say is that it takes a long time. So the reason that these, that this group here said they have to have taken the medicine for at least six months for them to be included in their analysis because it just takes that long for some of this stuff to work. So finasteride, one milligram a day for men, like five milligrams a day for women is what I do. Same thing for you, Michelle? Yeah. So usually when I'm treating um, female patients with lotus oral minoxidil, if they're younger and relatively healthy, I'll start off with a half of the 2.5 milligram minoxidil tablet. I previously was more conservative, but the literature and my personal experience have supported that that sort of moderate dose is very well tolerated and more efficacious. So it works out to 1.25 milligrams daily for the women. Um, in women that's, who are post Sorry, that's for minoxidil. Minoxidil. Um, for finasteride, if I'm going to use that for postmenopausal women or women who are done with their childbearing and who are positive about that, uh, because it can be a, ter a teratogen, um, then I'll use 2.5 milligrams a day typically to start, um, which is a half of the five milligram tablet that is produced commercially. And most of my female pa patients tolerate that very well. Finasteride has a relatively short half-life. So if you have a patient who is reliably not going to get pregnant, but 
is still within their reproductive years, it's not a problem like a, like using a tretinate would be. Like acetretin, you know, you have to put the kibosh on that on anybody who is theoretically of reproductive potential as a woman. Um, finasteride is not quite as stringent with that, but you do need to make sure they understand that it is a potential teratogen. For male patients, I'll usually start with the full two and a half milligram tablet of minoxidil, which is usually well tolerated and has been also shown to be well tolerated in the literature. Some male patients even do well with that dose at, at a twice daily dosing regimen. And then we have an in-depth discussion, just as we discussed, about the um, 5-alpha reductase inhibitors and whether they feel comfortable going on that therapy or not. Um, so if, I think that you could success with both regimens. I do see improved synergy and quicker and more robust results with combination therapy than with monotherapy, though. All right, let's talk about hydradenitis separativa. Another hairy topic, kind of. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So this next article is called Intermittent Low-Dose Corticosteroid Therapy for Hydradenitis Separativa, a case series. It's out of uh, JAD case reports, and the authors include Andres Erlandsson and Hassan Kilasli out of Sweden. So... Michelle, true or false, HS sucks. HS is one of the five things I would get rid of in dermatology's whole like lexicon of diseases if I had like that magic power because it really impacts people's lives. So listeners want to know, what are the other four in your top five? <laughs> okay, uh, pyoderma gangrenosum. Of course, uh, melanoma, because it is the most fatal. I would think about Merkel cell, but it affects fewer people. And so melanoma actually kind of gets top honors in that particular circumstance. Um, and this is going to probably be a little bit of surprise, but because of the suffering I've seen for patients with it, like erosive pustular dermatosis of the scalp can just be so morbid in these patients that have a really hard time taking care of it. And you just feel you know, horribly for them and then severe uncontrollable atopic dermatitis. Okay. So Michelle wants to put us all out of work. <laughs> so hydradenitis separativa is not fun. And some guidelines, like those we discussed in episode five, recommend rescue therapy with systemic steroids for bad flares. And I remember I hadn't thought about using that before reading the article. I figured that using, you know, systemic steroids in HS would be like throwing a bunch of crumpled up newspaper into a burning fire. Um, but since reading that article, I've used it occasionally. You know, you give somebody a prednisone pulse while they're flaring. But the data for that approach is not strong. It is mostly based on expert opinion. And rather than just giving somebody, you know, prednisone 40 milligrams daily for a week and then 30, 20, 10, and then stopping like I usually do, there might be a different way to use systemic steroids in HS, which is as pulse dosing. And this article describes a case series using that technique and, of course, some successes with it. So there were three cases with really bad refractory HS. A 47-year-old woman, a 43-year-old man, and a 22-year-old man. They had all failed medications like topicals, spironolactone, tetracycline antibiotics, adalimumab. So they all had failed a bunch of stuff. They had pretty bad refractory disease. So they were started on the same pulse-dose steroid regimen, which was betamethasone, Five milligrams twice a week. Interesting. I guess betamethasone is long acting, so that's probably bellworthy. That's a potential pimp question. So maybe that's why they picked it. And well, as prednisone is intermediate acting. Ding ding. Okay. So betamethasone long acting, prednisone intermediate acting. And apparently, five milligrams of betamethasone is equivalent to 31 milligrams of prednisone. So 
you're more familiar with prednisone, like I think most of us are, think about 30 milligrams of prednisone twice a week. And all of these patients had great responses, usually within three months, and no side effects. One patient was able to taper down to two milligrams twice a week, and one of the three was able to stop it completely. All of these patients were also in adjunct treatment like spironolactone, zinc, or acetretin. And the patients that are still taking betamethasone in this series are treated, quote, in collaboration with their PCPs to monitor for slash avoid some of the long-term side effects of steroid use like insulin resistance and osteoporosis. So that's the kind of thing that would sort of scare me if I wanted to try this approach with somebody is, uh, well, what do I have to do for monitoring to make sure that their bones stay healthy and so on? So if you're going to try this, it might be nice to remember some of the long-term steroid guidelines, which are as follows. So you want the patients to get their vaccines before you start the regimen and don't administer live vaccines if they're on chronic systemic steroids. Calcium and vitamin D supplementation. Uh, most people, it's 1,200 of calcium and 800 of vitamin D if the therapy is going to be for three months or more. Patients who are at r- increased risk for osteoporosis, and I think the exact people who are at increased risk for osteoporosis is sort of beyond what a dermatologist needs to know, so hopefully you'll do this in combination with a PCP. But if they are at increased risk, they might also need some kind of pharmacologic prevention. So in addition to the calcium and vitamin D, they might need something like bisphosphonates. And you might consider bone mineral density measurements at initiation of therapy and annually. So again, this is something you do in collaboration with a PCP. They do need ophthalmologic follow-up because systemic steroids can cause cataracts and glaucoma. And of course, you want to watch out for diabetes, insulin resistance, and so on. But I couldn't find any clear monitoring guidelines regarding hemoglobin A1c, etc. So again partnership with our PCP friends is important. They do point out that one of the downsides of using systemic steroids, even pulse dose, is withdrawal flares. So if a patient stops it, then they might get dramatically worse. But these patients all did well. They had bad HS. I'm sure five milligrams of betamethasone twice a week is way cheaper than adalimumab also. And pulse dose steroids have also been effective at remitting other inflammatory disorders while avoiding side effects such as alopecia areata and vitiligo. So perhaps a new and better way to use systemic steroids in our patients, especially those who have bad hydratinitis separativa. That's awesome to have anything else in your armamentarium to treat this condition because it can be so debilitating. Um, did they report any increase in um, like weight or did they look at that metric? Yeah, I worried about that, that they didn't mention it. Um, not all of their patients were obese. But yeah, that, yeah that's, that's something thing. else to think about. And it's one thing I might be a little bit concerned about, but it makes sense that kind of silencing the inflammation would improve outcomes and allows for potential healing in some of the lesions. So I thought that was very interesting. Well, speaking of things that are difficult to treat and require long-term intervention and potentially multidisciplinary care, um, let's talk now about atopic dermatitis. So this is an article out of JAMA Dermatology. It's an original investigation looking at internet-delivered cognitive behavioral therapy for atopic dermatitis in a randomized clinical trial. The authors are Eric Hedman Lejarov and Maria Bradley, and they're from the Department of Clinical Neurosciences, the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics in Carolina Institute, Stockholm, Sweden. 
they wanted to think about the possibility of using behavioral treatments with high accessibility to help improve patients' symptoms, as well as other factors such as stress and depression in adult patients with atopic dermatitis. And they wanted to use a highly scalable internet-delivered cognitive behavioral therapy platform. They randomized patients into this that were adults. Um, They had 102 adults in the entire study that were recruited from across Sweden. And they either randomized them to 12 weeks of internet-delivered cognitive behavioral therapy, which they describe later, versus standardized sort of normal patient information, like use emollients regularly when you're flaring, use your topical steroids once to twice daily, avoid irritating chemicals, things like that. Uh, So they were randomized in a one-to-one ratio. And they had 12 weeks of the therapist-guided internet-delivered cognitive behavioral therapy or that control condition, which was just those normal instructions that we would give typically in clinic. The primary outcome measure between the groups was looking at the difference in mean reduction of atopic dermatitis symptoms, which was measured by the patient-oriented eczema measure, also abbreviated as POEM. This is a measure that was actually developed by the University of Nottingham, which is kind of nice, and it is free to use, actually. You can access it on uh, the University of Nottingham's website, and it can be utilized for this kind of um, investigator-initiated trial. So after they did the randomization, they looked at their demographics. 80% of the cohort around that was female, um, and they were evenly distributed between the two groups. And there were some other small differences in demographics between the two populations. Uh, The few significant ones to me were that the internet-delivered cognitive behavioral therapy had more students in it than the control condition did, so 18% versus 8%, which I thought was interesting because, you know, the the lovely young people might be um, easier, uh, have an easier time accessing the, the interwebs, as it were. And then they also looked at previous treatments uh, some of the patients in the control condition, you know, greater percentage had been exposed to UV treatment and were health focused, but recent or ongoing UV therapy was an exclusion criteria for inclusion in studies. So they were um, not currently undergoing that particular therapy. So their results, of course, were very exciting to see that the participants that were receiving this internet delivered cognitive behavioral therapy relative to the control population had a significantly larger mean weekly reduction in symptoms of atopic dermatitis. They also had a moderate to large controlled effect size after treatment uh, and their secondary analyses looked at mediation of itch intensity, perceived stress, sleep problems, and depression, and found that there were improvement in those metrics as well. The gains were sustained at 12 months of follow-up and treatment satisfaction was high. They also point out, importantly, that the therapists spent a mean of 39 minutes per treated patient. So it wasn't a hugely time-consuming endeavor on the part of the therapists involved in the study. There was a lot of homework for the patients to, to perform that was necessary for involvement in the cognitive behavioral therapy arm. And the patients being willing to do the work is one of the criteria you have to have for cognitive behavioral therapy to be successful. So I think that they expressed that very well. And I thought yeah, that they did a so- nice job. It's the therapist spent 40 minutes total over the, over 12 the whole 12 weeks, weeks per yeah. patient. And it looks like that's because this is largely like a bunch of online modules that the patients do and they do some homework and then the therapists keep in touch with them asynchronously through some kind of text message. So it's like a fancy email, basically. Yeah, exactly. So it puts a lot of onus on the patient, heal mm-hmm. thyself, <laughs> but it's awesome that that can happen without so much time from a therapist, like actually sitting in front of somebody performing some kind of therapy that we can leverage all of this technology to make it happen. 
Yeah, they pointed out it's much more accessible, much more scalable than face-to-face video conferencing type style of therapy because it does have that reduced demand of time for the therapists themselves, but has a similar benefit for the patient participant. There is a statistic in here that I would like to kind of explain just because I think it's important for us to understand these when we're reading the literature as practicing dermatologists. And of course, for those in training, it's potentially something that could show up on an educational exercise. So... They use a metric called the controlled effect size, and that is basically looking at the magnitude of difference between treatment groups in the primary outcome, and this is expressed as a multiple of the standard deviation. So if you have a number that's less than one, then it is a decrease in whatever you're looking at. So if you have something that you're looking at, you know, severity of itch, and their controlled effect size is like 0.33, that's a decrease of that, of that metric, which is what you would look for. A uh, number that was greater than one would be multiplying by the standard deviation, so an increase of that metric that you would be looking at. So I think that that's an important thing to understand as we go forward in the discussion of this um, study here. But I did think that they did a nice job describing the potential impact of atopic dermatitis on patients' quality of life, including things such as depression, anxiety, suicidality, cardiovascular problems, sleep deprivation, and quality of life. And so the way that they uh, executed this, I thought was very well done. When you look at the cognitive behavioral therapy modules, they actually kind of line those out and they talk about the main homework that the patients were doing and what the theme of the different modules were. So they were, uh, they started off with an introduction to treatment and mindfulness training. They then then talked about cognitive behavioral therapy for understanding atopic dermatitis and protecting the skin barrier. They talked about control and avoidance behaviors, which is something atopic dermatitis patients might do. They might avoid going to a party if it's going to be outdoors because that might make them itch more. Or they might avoid going to something where they have to perform because the stress might worsen their itching. And so they actually use a little bit of exposure therapy, which is one of the tenets of cognitive behavioral therapy with response mitigation. So the patient is being mindful. They're thinking, okay, I'm in this situation. I might feel more itchy, but I'm going to just be in this moment and I'm not going to scratch because that creates that itch scratch itch cycle, which can create propensity for the uh, atopic dermatitis to worsen and perpetuate this severity of the condition. Yeah, so I think this is a really important nugget right here, because I was mentioning to a couple of my doctor friends the other day who are not dermatologists that I was reading this study about cognitive behavioral therapy and atopic dermatitis, and they they said, what does cognitive behavioral therapy have to do with atopic dermatitis? So really the important points here are that Scratching makes it worse in the long run. I think everybody knows that, including many of my patients' mothers. Um, And so you can learn techniques, mindfulness or whatever, to avoid scratching and making it worse. And then there's this interesting thing that avoiding things that trigger your atopic dermatitis actually make it worse in the long run also. And presumably there's a lot of psychology wrapped up in that. So if you say... Uh, I'm not going to wear this sweater because it makes me more itchy and then you don't wear it. Well, that can somehow, I guess, like reinforce the fact that you have a problem and wearing fabrics is a problem for you. Or if you say, I'm not going to go to this party because I don't want to be scratching my arms. Um, then, you know, you spend the time at home or whatever, not going to a party and thinking to yourself, man, it's too bad I have this disease, so I can't go to this party. And again, makes the whole thing worse. So a lot of these modules are aimed at correcting those sorts of behaviors. And 
my son has pretty mild atopic dermatitis, but it's really easy to see some of this when you're dealing with kids because he was there scratching his arm and it's like, dude, stop scratching. That makes it worse in the long run. And, you know, we already had pointed his topical steroid on, of course. So just give it time to work. And he says, I can't stop scratching. Yes, you can. You've got control over your own body. So maybe he needs to do some mindfulness. <laughs> so I thought that that was, you know, really well packaged for this study that they also talked about, you know, the risk aversion thing might create social isolation. We know that stress worsens atopic dermatitis and symptomatology. We've seen this in our patients, probably all of us over the past year, our patients with bad atopic dermatitis, a lot of them have flared partially because of the stress of the entire pandemic. And also I think part of it is the social isolation and the abnormal psychological condition that sets up for young people. So they then did conditioned atopic dermatitis symptoms and exposure, and they talked about behaviors they could do to cope. They talked about social stigma, continued exposure and value-based action, and then exposure and handling of sleep problems. They then also did continued exposure summary and then relapse prevention. Relapse prevention is an important final step in a cognitive behavioral therapy protocol because it helps them come over the anxiety of what am I going to do once this program is over? How am I going to maintain these benefits? Uh, so I thought that they did a nice job of that. So the poem, uh, st- the, the measurement that they were using, the poem scale, measures symptoms of atopic dermatitis, like itching, bleeding, cracked skin, and it goes on a scale of zero to 28. And it correlates very well with provider assessment of the patient's severity. However, pro- independent provider assessment of the patient's severity wasn't done. They also looked at the visual analog scale, the 5D itch scale, the perceived stress scale, patient health questionnaire, and the insomnia severity index. So they looked at all of these different metrics for patients' quality of life. And the treatment response um, showed at least a reduction that was sig- that was significant for the patients. They defined that as at least four points, which I thought was interesting to see. So when we looked at what the patients are actually doing, so the patients who were in the cognitive behavioral therapy group, they spent about 10 to 11 hours reading the text material in the modules and about 23 to 24 hours conducting treatment exercises during that 12-week treatment phase. So the patients had a lot of time buy-in, and I think this is important in patient selection. The patients have to be able to participate, so they have to have the um, sort of reserves of energy as well as the intellectual capacity and access to the internet to perform this, but they also have to be, I think, motivated to complete the work that's required for cognitive behavioral therapy to be successful, which is in contrast to the 40 minutes that the um, therapist spent over the entire course of the 12-week treatment protocol for the patients. One other nice thing about this study is that after the initial 12 weeks, the control group was then also given the cognitive behavioral therapy module. So those patients also received the benefit later. That did mean that they couldn't do 12 and six-month follow-up measures to show a difference because all patients eventually did get the treatment. But I thought that was a very compassionate thing to do, and I appreciated that as a human being that they did it that way. But they, they have did a very show nice... sustained improvement in those scores at 12 months, you know, even mm-hmm. after they hadn't done the therapy for the past nine months. Yeah, they did have sustained improvement, uh, but they couldn't distinguish between the two groups because both groups eventually did receive the therapy, which was nice. They in found... terms of the time commitment, so the amount of time the patient spent doing this averages out to about three hours a week or about 30 minutes a day. And not a lot of us having an extra 30 minutes a day that we could decide, oh, well, I'll just spend that time thinking about my atopic dermatitis. So just as you say, it requires people who are motivated and committed, 
But it says something optimistic about humanity, that if we are motivated and committed, look what we can do. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there are connections between our mind and how we experience and believe our body is going to behave and how it does behave. That's proven over and over again with, you know, elite athletes. We just watched the Olympics. A lot of us, many of those athletes spend hours visualizing optimized performance and our body listens a lot to our mind. So what we're able to do with that can make a significant difference. So these patients were able to improve their symptoms, including itch, reduction of perceived stress, sleep difficulties, and depressive symptoms. They were not able to improve generalized anxiety symptoms between the two groups. That was not different. So that kind of problem may benefit more from directed therapy towards the generalized anxiety condition. But I was Well, they pointed out that spending so much time thinking about their atopic dermatitis may have created more anxiety and stress surrounding it. So perhaps that's why that metric didn't improve. That may be why, and also the patients in the um, experimental group were having to encounter circumstances that would normally provoke anxiety for them. And they did actually talk about the fact that they had eight patients in the cognitive behavioral therapy group that reported adverse events, and those were the experience of stress related to those exposure activities, but none of them discontinued the protocol for that reason. So I think this is a really great way to try to help improve patients. They bring forward the common sense argument is how do we get this to be integrated into healthcare writ large and how do we get it to be compensated and sustainable and i do think that it is something that we need to kind of continue to have dialogues with our lawmakers and policymakers about how to take you know care of a complete human being our healthcare system incentivizes doing a lot so it incentivizes procedures and it sort of streamlines and facilitates prescription over things like cognitive behavioral therapy, over things like preventative care. Uh, but I do think if you think rationally and forwardly uh, about how the population will behave in the future, investing in things like this that could actually change overall outcomes over time is intelligent. So this is cool for a number of reasons. One is that I was a psychology major in college, and this is kind of a cool way to combine that interest in dermatology. So no surprise that I'm interested in this. Why stop with atopic dermatitis is a question. You know, a lot of diseases in dermatology and, in fact, just diseases in general have a pretty significant behavioral or psychological component. And this was pretty easy, again, for the therapist with technology these days to implement and get fairly significant improvement. Um, you, again, the patients have to be the right patients. So they have to be the people who are committed and motivated and actually have the time to do it. So you can be committed and motivated, but if you have four little kids and you're a single parent, then good luck to you. And another, though, another issue is that there was no, there was no placebo. You can't really do placebo therapy, right? So it's possible that the people who were willing to sign up for the study were all people who were like, Ooh, cognitive behavioral therapy sounds cool. And then the people who didn't get randomized to that arm were like disappointed. And maybe that's why that they didn't get better or something like that. So it's tough to say exactly, but it's cool that there's a lot of potential there. And I think, you know, in my ideal world, this kind of thing would exist through some kind of simple website that insurance would reimburse for. And so with like most of my atopic dermatitis patients, I could say, hey, are you motivated and committed and have the time to spend? If so, this has been shown to be really helpful. And then I could just give them the link and then they could go there. And if they wanted to, then they could try to get better that way. I'd also be interested in seeing how it works in the pediatric age group. My guess would be not as well, but who knows? Well, and I think that there's also opportunity for a, you know, 
free market sort of enterprise here as there has actually developed with trichotillosis. So there's a website I have no relation to relationship to at all, um, but it is helpful for some patients called stoppulling.com. And it is a cognitive behavioral therapy that the patient enrolls in. They do pay for it. It's not crazy expensive. It's about $30 a month, but it goes through cognitive behavioral therapy to mitigate the activity of, of trichotillosis and the pulling of the hair and the repetitive behavioral cycle. And patients who do this tend to do very well. And I think that, you know, while we're working on trying to get this accessible for all patients, because certainly while $30 a month sounds reasonable for a lot of us, for some of my patients that I take care of in our, you know, underinsured population, that is the difference between buying groceries and, and, you know, not being able to eat. So while I think that it's at least a way for something like this to become elegantly maybe developed, the ability to provide it to patients who can't pay for it also would be more equitable and um, would create better access. Interesting stuff. Michelle, I think we should move on to the clip show. Yes, so so if you have been listening to Dermosphere for the past 10 episodes, some of this may sound familiar. We're going to just talk about the things we've learned out of each episode. Michelle and I are kind of kind of go back and forth sharing the episodes and we'll all enjoy some pleasant memories. (laughs) memories. All right. So we'll start with episode 51, which was also a clip show. Uh, But we also had a couple articles. We forgot to do it in episode 50. Yes. Uh, So first article was grapes are like heliocare. So we learned that in animal models, grape polyphenols can protect against acute and chronic ultraviolet induced radiation damage and inflammation. Uh, So they wanted to do a prospective single group open label intervention study where they took healthy adults and they gave them this freeze dried California table grape powder that they drank in a little suspended drink for 14 days and found that they were able to increase the MED by 75 ish percent um, without increasing the melanin index. So it wasn't causing skin pigmentation like hyper supplementing beta carotene might. It was interestingly funded by the California table grape commission, but it was an interesting little study. We also talked about how Etanercept works for rhyme, if you don't remember, rhyme is reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption associated with mycoplasma pneumonia. And they were able to find that etanercept was an effective treatment for patients with that condition in the pediatric age group. You remember looked- what used to be called MERM, mycoplasma-induced rash and mucositis, is now rhyme. You know, rhyme sounds to me better than merm. It's easier to say. It doesn't sound like a disgruntled older gentleman. So I think I like rhyme better. Uh, Doopy plus UVB equals faster response in atopic dermatitis. So there's a nice article that showed that if you use UVB phototherapy along with the initiation of dupilumab, you achieve a faster uh, treatment response in those patients. You don't exceed the treatment response of patients who aren't treated with the UVB phototherapy, but you get better faster. We also looked at dupilumab for Grover's disease, and it was beneficial for those patients. Some of those patients have a very difficult time with that condition. I personally have a patient who had recalcitrant intractable Grover's disease, who's done so beautifully on dupilumab, it's like a miracle for him. And then we talked about teledermatology pros and cons with a guest. Edward Hadler was on with us, talking about how we can help deliver care to patients with this modern therapeutic intervention. In episode 52, boy, did we have some good discussions. For example, about melanoma biomarkers. We again had some guests, Drs. Decker Deacon and Robert Judson Torres. They were wanted to discuss their article, which is an in-depth discussion of biomarkers and their utility in melanoma, especially with an eye to developing new ones and refining those we do have. So if you want to really feel like you understand those biomarkers that are out there or you're somebody who wants to develop some, that's a great article and a great discussion to listen to. 
where I learned about micro needling for acne scars. Is insulin better than PRP? And uh, by PRP in this context, we mean platelet-rich plasma. So this was a very small trial, 16 patients. They all had dark phototypes, kind of interesting, that all had acne scars, and they were all treated with micro needling. This was a split face study. They just put topical insulin all over one side, and they put PRP on the other, and the insulin performed better. The patients had four sessions at monthly intervals, and improvement was 45% in the insulin group versus 26% in the PRP group. And Michelle says that she was wandered up to a pharmacy and asked to buy some topical insulin, and it was pretty cheap. So this is something that you could actually go do right now if you wanted. Yeah, I've actually done it on several patients. Um, you want to do make sure that they're not fasting just in case uh, the blood sugar levels were followed in the participants in the trial that was published. But yeah, it's about $28 at Walmart. It's key that it's Walmart. They have a special, I guess, deal with the producers of no the producers of Novolin. Um, and there was act rapid insulin that was used in the study. So the Novolin R is the rapid acting type of insulin that's available without a prescription for $28 for a hundred units. Do you use all hundred units? No, 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 no. You just use a couple of milliliters per patient and it tends to do very well. And the, your patients were happy with their results? What do you think? I think actually they heal faster from the microneedling. I actually also tried this out on my twin sister. So I got to watch her healing every single day. Um, and it was faster than I would have expected based off of previous treatments I've provided for her. Um, she also felt like she got better results. And I've been very pleased with it in my patients as well. Cool. So HS, we talked about HS uh, this episode, but a host of comorbidities is also associated with HS. And we discussed an article that not only outlined them all, but also offered advice for screening. So what's associated with HS? Well, the following. Acne, dissecting cellulitis of the scalp, pyelonidal disease, pyoderma gangrenosum, Down syndrome. So your Down syndrome patients, you might check to see if they have HS. I think if your HS patient doesn't obviously have Down syndrome, you don't need to screen them for it. People with HS smoke, they have inflammatory bowel disease, spondyloarthritis, sexual dysfunction, obesity, depression, anxiety, suicidality, substance use, PCOS, hypertension, dyslipidemia, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and cardiovascular disease. What a bummer. Some other reasons why we need our PCP friends to help us out. And then we talked about vitamin D and atopic dermatitis vitamin D in AD. So this was a study from Brazil that showed that for pediatric atopic dermatitis patients with low vitamin D levels, if you replete their vitamin D levels, they get greater improvement, even though everybody's also treated with standard of care. So pretty cool. I obviously have a lot of pediatric patients with atopic dermatitis since I'm a pediatric dermatologist. The main hurdle for me is like, who do I do blood work on to check to see if they have it? But if you do it, or you somehow know that they have low vitamin D, deplete their vitamin D, they should get better faster. In episode 52, we had a case report we reviewed talking about topical glycopyronium for aquagenic wrinkling of the palms, which as we know can be associated with cystic fibrosis gene carriage, but also can be idiopathic or drug-induced by medications such as aspirin, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, salcoxib, or clarithromycin. And this young female patient responded very nicely to topical glycopyronium for her aquagenic palmar wrinkling or aquagenic palmal plantar keratoderma. This we was episode 53 you're discussing 53, here. sorry, think... you're right, 53. My bad. Um, topical steroids positively impacting biomarkers. In this study, it was found that innate immune system activation mediators were actually improved by the use of topical steroids, including interleukin-18, IL-8, IL-1-alpha, 
and um, CCL17 and CCL22. They also saw that in the blood, there were changes in TH2 skewed biomarkers such as IL-5 and that CCL17 and CCL22 and that transepidermal water loss decreased after therapy. This was biomarkers associated with atopic dermatitis. Yes. Sort of showing that putting steroids on the skin actually changes biomarkers in the blood. Which, you know, therapeutically gives some advantage. It also might cause some disease modification. We think a lot about dermatologic diseases hardening because all of them are really expressions of our immune system kind of malfunctioning. And the greater our immune system reacts to something, the more angry it thinks it's supposed to get each time. So I think that mitigating that is reasonable. We talked about weekly dosing of dupilumab. So they had a cohort of atopic dermatitis patients that were inadequately controlled on every other weekly dosing. The patients were then giving dupilumab every week with an improvement of their atopic dermatitis and good tolerance. We talked about COVID vaccine cutaneous reactions. They looked at 414 cutaneous reactions from the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, Moderna had 83% of those. Pfizer had 17%. Delayed large local reactions were the most common. I think a lot of us experienced that sort of almost like a modified Arthas reaction with the hot red circle on the arm that was injected. There were also- what reaction? Sorry? Like an Arthas reaction. What's an Arthas reaction? It's like a precipitation of antibody and the antigen complex that sometimes you get with vaccinations. That sounds like part of a chapter I skipped over. (laughs) So they had also urticarial eruptions, morbilliform eruptions. They found that 43% of patients who had a first dose reaction had a second dose recurrence and less common reactions were pernia or chilblains. The debate rages on as to whether that's related or not to COVID. Cosmetic filler reactions, which we talked about, I think last episode, zoster and simplex flares and pityriasis rosea-like reactions. I've seen several of those PR-like activations right after the COVID-19 vaccination. But the most important thing that came out of that article was that even if you have got a reaction, you should still get the second dose because they were all fine. Mm Mm-hmm. The reactions were annoying, but not dangerous. And then finally, we talked about suture cosmesis, where they looked at deep suture material. They found that polygalactin 910 had cosmesis equivalent to polyglycoprone 25, but worse than polydioxone. Uh, They found polypropylene had cosmetic outcomes equivalent to absorbable sutures, with nylon having worse cosmetic outcomes, which isn't surprising. Nylon's quite inflammatory in the skin. They also found that there wasn't a difference in cosmesis with co- with the suture diameter between 5 and 6-0 fast-absorbing gut, and that the subcuticular technique was improved cosmesis when compared to using interrupted sutures. Uh, they all, We also finally reviewed a very fun article, and I think we had a guest resident for this, about environmental causes of skin aging part two, looking at a comp. Uh, concept called the exposome. So this is the things that our skin is exposed to that might alter our genome and our own sort of cellular expression of those genes, which would include air pollution, solar radiation, climate, and nutritional and other factors, and that these can affect extrinsic skin aging. In episode 54, we discussed an alopecia areata consensus guidelines regarding labs and biopsies. This was a Delphi process with a bunch of alopecia areata experts. So you don't necessarily need a biopsy to diagnose alopecia areata, but if you feel like you do in a particular case, horizontal and vertical sectioning is a good idea to confirm the diagnosis. A single biopsy that you section in both ways is usually sufficient. Be sure to take it from an area of the scalp that is not usually affected by androgenetic alopecia because you don't want to cloud the picture and take it from near the edge of an active lesion because you don't want to find a burned out area. As far as labs go, you don't really need to do them. Though interestingly, these experts did not reach a consensus about checking thyroid or vitamin D. 
I don't usually check it if the patient's asymptomatic, but hey, people couldn't agree, even if they're experts. We also discussed a rather heartbreaking article suggesting that Timolol does not work for hemangiomas. This was a very well-done placebo-controlled trial of Timolol for infantile hemangiomas, and it was no better than placebo! The good news is that many hemangiomas improved within the first 12 months even with placebo, though I still wonder about Timolol's efficacy in small superficial hemangiomas. It doesn't look like it's what to do for all comers. We discussed a fun little case report about a fecal transplant improving (laughs) alopecia areata. So there was an elderly man with a patch of alopecia areata who grew it back after a fecal transplant for chronic diarrhea. Could be coincidence. I... I don't know. It's tough to say, but fecal transplant always raises one on his eyebrows. We were not done with hemangiomas in that episode. We also talked about ulcerated hemangiomas, specifically go easy on the propranolol. This was a retrospective review of ulcerated hemangiomas that showed a couple things. One is that they just take a long time to heal. This takes one to two months, sorry. And they take longer if the patient is taking propranolol at two milligrams per kilogram per day, which is kind of the standard dose. So consider dosing it at one mg per kg per day if the hemangioma is ulcerated, at least until the ulceration improves, then bump it up to the goal dose of two mg per kg per day. We talked about methotrexate potentially being the best for pityriasis rubropolaris. So this is a retrospective review of patients with PRP uh, from University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, where I went to medical school. Shout out to you guys. In contrast to previous studies that have said acetretin is best in this population, methotrexate resulted in better results and fewer side effects. Um, I actually have a little pediatric patient. He's five or six. He's got bad PRP. We couldn't get acetretin because of insurance issues. So he started methotrexate just about six weeks ago, and he's already a lot better. So go methotrexate. And finally, we discussed that a store and forward dermatology triage system can save money. This was a large safety net hospital system in San Francisco that experimented with a store and forward triage system for every dermatologic concern. So anybody who presented to a PCP with some kind of dermatologic issue took some pictures, sent it to dermatology, and they showed that this saved the system money, at least if you compare it to referring all of the patients to dermatology. In episode 55, we talked about the fact that short-term PO steroids carry risks in children. It was a nationwide population-based study of over a million kids who received a single corticosteroid burst, and that was associated with a 1.4 to 2.2-fold increased risk of gastrointestinal bleeding, sepsis, and pneumonia within the first month after corticosteroid initiation. One of those scary articles about systemic steroids, which always have to be used, I think, on a case-by-case basis and should always be used with caution. We talked about derm lifestyle modifications, and there's some evidence that shows there's a relationship between modifiable lifestyle factors and dermatologic outcomes. The most studies exist on diet, stress, alcohol, and smoking, but all lifestyle factors were supported by some degree of scientific evidence. We had an article on using dupilumab for recalcitrant lichen uh, planus. Long story short, it worked. Yay! Uh, Dermoscopy can determine the species of tinea capitis, so they looked at trying to differentiate between ectothrix and endothrix infections, and were able to find that Morse code hairs, zigzag hairs, and white and yellow scales are suggested of microsporum infections, which are typically ectothrix, and corkscrew hairs and black dots are more common in trichosporic 
endothrix infections. Um, all dermoscopic findings were resulting from either the coating of the outside of the hair with the fungal hyphae or the invasion of the hair shaft itself. We also talked about rosacea fulminans herpeticum. So rosacea fulminans, rare disorder, characterized by sudden onset of coalescing papules and plaques and a background of erythema, more common in women, can happen in pregnancy. In this particular patient, they actually had that phenomenon along with concomitant herpes infection. So just like we have potentially eczema herpeticum, this patient had rosacea fulminans herpeticum, which is something important to recognize and treat properly. In that um, episode, we also discussed that propranolol works for ulcerated hemangiomas, kind of related to the discussion we had the previous episode about ulceration and propranolol, but it does still improve the hemangioma, so you don't necessarily need to avoid it if they're ulcerated, just go a little bit slow. Episode 56, we discussed a technique called the stick and move hemostasis <laughs> technique. So if you're performing a bunch of punch biopsies, especially if you're doing like it on an inpatient, consider using a cotton-tipped applicator doused in Drysol, you know, the chemical cautery stuff, aluminum chloride, hexahydrate for hemostasis while you just go about your business. So, you know, punch, 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 remove a piece of skin, stick in a cotton-tipped applicator so it's just poking out of the patient's skin while you go on and stip the next specimen and so on. We had a fun article about video game dermatoses. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of dermatoses that are associated with video game play, especially excessive play, including various repetitive motion issues like calluses and so on, periorbital hyperpigmentation associated with sleep deprivation, <laughs> And my favorite, ulcerative nintendinitis, which was related to the game Mario Party. People would twirl the joystick super fast using their palms instead of their thumbs and then ulcerate the center of their palms. And then we had a great discussion about gene expression profiles and how you shouldn't use them. So this was a consensus statement among a group of melanoma experts stating that the current gene expression profiles for melanoma, you know, those things that are available from Castle Biosciences and so on, are not yet ready for prime time. But the technique does show potential. So if you understand them very well, especially if in the context of a tumor board or something, they can be helpful. But don't just buy them because somebody bought you a steak dinner and Medicare reimburses for them. So in episode 57, we looked at behavioral economics for dermatology. So behavioral economics are kind of cool. Um, they basically leverage our understanding of human decision-making capacity, which is in a nutshell, intuition trumps reason to better promote treatment adherence, which is depressingly 40% non-adherence in patients who are you know, being treated for dermatologic diseases, um, which can then improve quality of life and decrease economic burden. So the techniques they talked about were anchoring, decoy effect, framing, and financial and social incentives, as well as loss aversion. Uh, so some of the things they talked about, for example, framing, um, they talk about giving sort of the option of something in in the setting of um, setting expectations. So counseling patients, for example, about how the fact that if you apply a topical, such as one of our calcineurin inhibitors, you might experience burning, but the burning will go away after a period of time and the dermatitis will get better. As you frame their expectations, they may be more likely to adhere to therapy and you can transform their fear of adverse effects into encouragement for therapeutic efficacy. Uh, they also talked about the possibility of anchoring with injections. So 
if you ask patients how willing are you to take a monthly injection and then you additionally ask how willing are you to receive a daily injection, the patient, by anchoring that to a different expectation, may feel more comfortable with the other alternative of taking a monthly injection. And then they talked about things like the decoy effect, where you might present an intermediate option uh, for the patient so that they can then pick something that their brain classifies as superior. So you could present them with, well, this is the you know, kind of least likely to be successful, but lowest risk intervention. This is the medium option. And here's the option that I think will work the best for you and let them pick based off of that. And then I think financial and social um, incentives are relatively self-explanatory. You know, it's less expensive in the long run if you treat this properly, or, you know, you will have fewer problems with something that you find sort of stigmatizing if you um, are using your therapy properly. We talked yeah, about- or even. I'll give you a hundred bucks if you take all your medicine. True. That's another option or even the chance at a hundred bucks. Like for some of those patients, they said, well, we will do a drawing. And if you complete this therapeutic you know, evaluation, there'll be a drawing and you have a chance to get $50 or something. And that improved patients' adherence. We talked about pain management and hydronitis suppurativa. And we talked about recognizing HS pain as either acute or chronic and is either predominantly nociceptive, which would be aching or gnawing pain because of tissue damage versus neuropathic, which would be a burning type pain because of somatosensory nervous system dysfunction. And then treatment rubrics for each, acute pain focusing on NSAIDs, either topically or systemically, interlesional triamcinolone, which in a previous episode we talked about may not be as beneficial, but sometimes does seem to show benefit, incision and drainage. And then for other um, therapies, you might consider tramadol or another short-acting opioid for breakthrough severe acute pain. For chronic pain, HS-directed therapy, you know, trying to mitigate the disease is advocated for very strongly. Non-pharmacologic pain therapies such as physical therapy, wound care, and behavioral health. So sort of a, a bit of a hint towards cognitive behavioral therapy there. And then for the pharmacologic analgesia, if you have nociceptive pain, NSAIDs, duloxetine, nortreptiline would be beneficial versus the neuropathic pain. Using an agent such as gabapentin, duloxetine, pregabalin, then laxatine or nortreptiline could be useful. Uh, adjunctive therapies as well, such as topical lidocaine or topical um, NSAIDs. And then if that fails, referral to a pain specialist. We had a continuation of our natural products for atopic dermatitis, uh, showing that some of our natural products, such as prurarian, uh, ferulic acid, genocides, um, these things might potentially protect against atopic dermatitis and might exert anti-inflammatory effects by suppressing many inflammatory cell types and cytokines, including decreasing numbers of neutrophils, monocytes, lymphocytes, and Langerhans cells, as well as influencing IL-1 um, alpha, IL-1 beta, IL-4, and TNF alpha. Uh, so that's a possible where we could potentially impact that condition. We had a fun article about postural correction apparel, and I actually posted a little selfie wearing one of the devices, uh, which is one of our IntelliSkin built-in sort of auto-traction shirts to help move your shoulders into a better alignment, or potentially some of the um, feedback devices you can wear that can tell you if you're starting to slouch. And we finally talked about an article about Greer's Goo. So Greer's Goo being a concoction of nystatin powder, hydrocortisone powder, and a zinc oxide paste. If this is compounded in a pharmacy, it can be relatively expensive for patients, but they can potentially, if they are um, a little bit crafty, make it at home. So you can reduce the cost by more than 70% to about a $29 cost for the kind of cohort of ingredients you need, which would make four ounces for the patient. So you'd start off with a prescription for nystatin cream, uh, the 
hydrocortisone two and a half percent ointment, and then a over-the-counter zinc oxide paste, which the patient would then mix in a one-to-one-to-one ratio in their palm, and then apply to the relevant skin. And that has the benefit of keeping the ingredients separated and preserved in their original packaging, which probably prolongs their um, effective half-lives on the shelf, while also allowing the patient to customize how much they need each time. In episode 58, we discussed the deoxycholic acid for lipomas. So Kybella is the name of this product, the brand name. This was a case report of a woman with a lipoma on the face that was treated with serial injections of deoxycholic acid rather than excision because she didn't want a scar. She got six injections, each three to eight weeks apart, and did well. Uh, there was The injections were 0.1 or 0.2 ml per injection, so not very much. And the solution was 10 milligrams per ml. So if you've got patients with lipomas on the face and access to Kybella, you might want to check that out. We learned about autoimmune associations with lichen sclerosis. This was a big data study of adult women with lichen sclerosis. Turns out that they have an increased risk of thyroid disease three times, vitiligo 12 times, psoriasis five times, and vulvar carcinoma 26 times. Thyroid disease is the most common of these ab- these comorbidities. So consider screening your patients with lichen sclerosis for thyroid symptoms. We talked about a premolast for hydradenitis suppurativa. This was a small extension of an earlier study that showed that a premolast worked okay for HS, and it still works okay, but just okay after some additional months on treatment. There were eight patients in this extension, and six of them said that they would recommend it. We had part two of our natural products for atopic dermatitis series, um, discussing things like piperine, pseudoephedrine, and astaxanthin. Um, we haven't done the third and final part yet. Honestly, I just kind of forgot about it, but we will plan to hit that in the next episode. So if you have been eagerly looking forward to part three of natural products for atopic dermatitis, um, tune in two weeks. We'll have it for you. We talked about Xanthomatous nevus, which is the case report of a funny nevus with a yellow blob in the middle. And then it was removed and on pathology, it was, it looked xanthomatous. The patient had familial hypercholesterolemia. So if you have a patient with a xanthomatous nevus, consider screening them for lipid abnormalities. And finally, we talked about topical oxybutynin for hyperhidrosis. This was a smallish RCT that compared compounded 10% oxybutynin cream to vehicle and showed that it helped for primary axillary hyperhidrosis. But it might be kind of expensive. The local compounding pharmacy here in Salt Lake City said they could whip up 30 grams for $100. Finally, in episode 59, just last episode, we talked about dermatology memes and the fact that in a world where information can behave like human genes replicating itself and spreading around, memes can continue to evolve along with these advances and may potentially influence both professional and public uh, perception of our profession. And so these can be potentially used both for good and for evil. And I, I like the idea of putting out more positive dermatology memes about dermatologists. We talked about collagenase for cellulite, and I signed up as a layperson as well for the House of Booty, which is where patients can get information as lay people about this treatment. So they had um, 843 women that were enrolled in two different studies, um, release one and release two, and they showed greater percentages of patients who were treated with the um, injected medication, which is this collagenase Clostridium histiolyticum AAES that improved uh, their grade of cellulite uh, by one or two points on this scale. So they had greater numbers of patients, of course, who who improved by one grade than by two grades, which was a very stringent endpoint, but it did work and it is coming to a 
cosmetic clinic probably near you, up to Sitinib for atopic dermatitis. Uh, they looked at two trials here, Measure Up 1 and Measure Up 2, that demonstrated superiority of both up to Sitinib 15 milligrams and up to Sitinib 30 milligrams versus placebo in adults and adolescents with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis and good tolerance. And this might be an option for patients who are not responders to dupilumab for atopic dermatitis. I think it's going to be awesome. Yeah. If we can only get the patients the medicine, we need it to be slightly more affordable. Um, Lisinopril for COVID-induced filler swelling. So lisinopril was well-tolerated with minimal side effects and was able to be used for both alleviation of acute delayed inflammatory reaction in filler following the COVID vaccine, which has also been seen following natural COVID infection. And you can also potentially use it to prevent delayed inflammatory reaction in patients for their second dose, or as we're learning now for their booster dose, as that is coming for all of us, I think, uh, if the patient has filler placement and has had that experience before, and it can minimize the risk of delayed inflammatory response after a second dose of vaccine or potentially after the booster doses, uh, it actually probably is a better choice for uh, you know, administering to patients who might have a filler reaction than an anti-inflammatory. There's been some back and forth about whether you could, you should pre-treat with anti-inflammatories before the vaccines or not. Uh, but I think this is a very reasonable way to help treat patients who might have a delayed inflammatory reaction for their filler. And in this episode right now that you are currently listening to, we discussed female pattern hair loss in men and how you can make it better with finasteride and minoxidil if they take it for at least six months. We learned that pulse PO steroids, so beta-methasone 5 milligrams twice weekly, might be an option for your bad HS patients. And we learned that internet-delivered cognitive behavioral therapy could significantly improve some symptoms in atopic dermatitis. It was great hanging out with you guys today. So we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks, of course, to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting the podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech for lending us Michelle. If you would like to listen to more of our episodes, perhaps any of those we just briefly discussed during our clip show, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, which has our entire archive as well as some other goodies and is a good way to get in touch with us. You can also find us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And thanks to Ryan Carlisle, medical student and member of Team Dermosphere, who keeps those moving along. And thanks to you for hanging out with us today. Always had a great time. Always had a great time. As always, I have had a great time discussing some of the latest research in dermatology. And I was recently traveling, of course, wearing a mask the whole time. I spent a lot of time on planes looking up the next articles that we are going to discuss. And there's a lot of exciting stuff out there. So I'm looking forward to hanging out with you guys again in two weeks. 